you're back. Thank you. Thank you so much. Episode two of the Tartar Project. Your host here, Phil Toronto, sitting in gloomy New York City. It's still a fine day. Spring is right around the corner. And I am thrilled to be bringing a lovely conversation with the ever impressive Michelle Romano. You might know her from Dragon's Den if you're based in our great neighbor to the north, Canada. Uh, That is the Canadian version of Shark Tank. Dragons, as opposed to sharks. It sounds like a feisty battle if they were ever to face off. Hopefully one day they do. If they don't, I feel like it's a safer place for the world. Either way, doesn't matter. Uh, She has an amazing story. She definitely overcame some hurdles. You'll hear about her adventures as a caviar expert and how that blossomed into one of the fastest growing daily deals apps of all time, which led to an acquisition, which led to a lot of other cool stuff. She's an amazing entrepreneur, investor. She wears many hats. I can't wait for you to hear the interview. Hey, everybody. Episode two of the Tartar Project. We have Michelle Romano, amazing woman, amazing entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur. We happen to meet each other at a dinner mm-hmm. at a restaurant that you invested in slash own yep. up in Toronto. Goldie. Um, Goldie. That's right. Check it out if you're in the six. I just confirmed with her before we went on air that I can say that due to my last name. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I have an affinity for the city, as you probably know, but uh, we'll just we'll dive right into this. Where were you born? In uh, in Calgary. So I grew up in kind of the land of the super outdoorsman and the rodeo. <laughs> Amazing. And you're also a Flames fan, I assume. Obviously. <laughs> Amazing. They're having a hell of a year. They are. Really doing well. When did the entrepreneurial bug bite you? Did you know early on where your parents kind of filling you in on the types of businesses or arbitrage opportunities or what have you as you're going? You had like scams because I, I had a couple of scams growing up. But <laughs> what what kind of clued you in like you didn't want the traditional nine to five path? Yeah. You know, my parents weren't entrepreneurs themselves. My mom was a nurse. Uh, my dad was an engineer that ended up doing you know, really well in an oil company, but they were really encouraging of, you know, my kind of experimentation. And so at first, you know, the first kind of initiatives I took were in non-for-profit space. By the time I got to Queens, I mean, if you're from Alberta, the first thing you are is a, is a bleeding heart environmentalist at 19. So my first business was, you know, a, a sustainable coffee shop to see if we could build a coffee shop that had, you know, zero environmental impact. And so started that in my second year of school. It opened up in my fourth year. It was called the Tea Room. It's still on the Queen's University campus wow. 10 years later. And it was really then that, you know, I just fully embrace this idea that if you want to see a change, like you got to go build it. Like it's, it's just the easiest and it's the most fun. And then from there, it was, you know, I had studied engineering kind of figured out that I was going to be a lot better at building businesses than building bridges and met this guy named Anatoly in undergrad and him and I and a third partner named Ryan, we spent all of our time playing what's the next million dollar idea. Like we would book these conference rooms and over beers and all the time we were just brainstorming, you know, the ideas that we could come up with. I mean, we had, you know, 
like <laughs> we wanted to make biodegradable water bottles. This story ended by us making one in a lab, and then we came back the next day, and there was no longer a, a bottle of water. It was just a puddle <laughs> of water. It was just way so, too sustainable. So yeah. our environmental impact was that uh, we were a bit too effective in what we were doing, and you know, finally figured out like on a random whimsical brainstorm that worldwide supply of sturgeon caviar was down by 95%. We have just overfished the Caspian Sea and so did a bunch of research and then, you know, figured out that we would have to raise some money for this. And so as students, we were like, well, we'll do these business plan competitions. You know, you win like 10 grand or 20 grand every time, which felt like a lot of money at the time. So, you know, we didn't win the first couple, but then we won like the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, something like that. So we graduated with $120,000, which is pretty big. You're rich. Until I tell you we needed $6 million (laughs) to start a fish farm. We were very far away from what we needed. And so our solution was to get scrappy. We needed to figure out how to make caviar and make it quickly. In our research, we had figured out that there was a natural supply of sturgeon that hadn't been caught for a number of years in the east coast of Canada. And, you know, we're crazy enough to decline our job offers and drive out to the East Coast and build a fishery from scratch. That's literally everything it sounds like. As students do. Fishermen, my hands need to even fish. I'd never gone fishing in my life. Like this, you know, that activity never, never happened. Had you been on a boat? Uh, Yeah, I'd I'd probably been on a boat. Okay, Uh, so partially qualified. Partially (laughs) qualified. Yeah. And I think I've never lost a little bit of that crazy gene where, you know, if you see something and you want to go build it, you know, the scariest moment is always the moment before you jump in. You just you just got to force yourself into action. <laughs> Absolutely. That was probably right when you declined the offer and maybe 10 minutes into the ride to the East Coast where it's just like, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, what have I done here? That's and amazing. Like, this was the most glamorous product for the least glamorous supply chain you have ever seen. I mean, we were literally like picking up these fish, processing the fish. Some people are like, how did you know how to make caviar? And the real answer to that is I is we watched a series of YouTube videos all in Russian. Amazing. <laughs> to like figure out well, they're the experts. So that that's they good are. that you went to the source. That's huge. It was. It was. Anyway, you know, our thesis was right. People hadn't been able to get the product for years. And so when we called chefs, they were like, yeah, of course I want this product. And uh, we did all the cold calling ourselves. I remember, uh, you know, it was kind of like, hey, I'm Michelle Romano. I'm calling you from Evandale Caviar. We were incorporated like two weeks ago, but I caught a fresh sturgeon this morning. <laughs> and you need to tell me if you want it, you know, in the next three hours because that's when FedEx closes. That's huge. And uh, Buy now. Got to. Got to put now. the pressure on. I know. I know. Anyway, that was, uh, that was my first adventure. That's amazing. And so you're, you're scaling up the fish business. Yeah. Caviar for days. You're becoming an expert in the supply chain and everything. Why? Why is that not your business today? What What happened? Was there something along the way? Um, yeah. When did you start that? Actually, so what was the year? So, well, this is very interesting. So, I started it the year I graduated, and so we drove out in the summer. And this was kind of a seasonal business, so you know you can't catch the fish kind of after September. And now we are in September of 2008. Hell so, of a time. Hell of a time. I mean, this is, we are now in the the biggest global recession. I am 21 years old. I know there is no chance I'm making it out of here alive. That, like, it was everything. I mean, Christmas parties turned to Christmas lunches. Like, there was just no possible way that this was going to work. And so, you know, ended up trying a bunch of other ideas. Uh, None of them we could really get critical traction on. I mean, 
we, we tried everything. I was like, you know, offices, they need like fruit. And so I like went door to door selling like office subscriptions of fruit. Like, yeah, we just, we were just trying to stay alive. Yeah. To, to start something. And then finally, after a year of that, I was like, okay, I'm out of luck, out of time, out of money. And, you know, it was, um, like I was a, I was an academic student and had, and had done pretty well in school and, you know, been the like student of the year or whatever at all the different schools I had went to. And when this caviar business failed, it hurt. Definitely. Like it didn't matter if there was a recession or not. Everyone knew that we were the ones that left school to become entrepreneurs. And it was like, I was going to parties with my friends and I was like, I was just like, please, please don't have anyone ask me about this. Please. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, you're just, forget, just you're forget just, collectively that this ever happened. You're please. just like, it was, it was a really big moment of like sitting with the failure and you know, some of it, like some of it was just the market, but it, it doesn't matter. It still hurts. Definitely. It was your baby. And, um, and that was like a, that was a big lesson. And the other big lesson that came out of that was, you know, we had done all this planning. We had spent a year just doing one of those giant 80 page business plans, you know, doing all the research, making these massive Excel models and, you know, realizing that everything that happened, we built and iterated on after we started the business. And so, you know, all the planning in the world wasn't going to save me. It certainly wasn't going to prevent me from failure. And, you know, it was a, it was a big lesson that when I was going to do this again, there was going to be, you know, very low planning, very high execution. (laughs) Definitely. I love that. Um, just to touch on that a little bit more, because I feel like that's important for anybody that's thinking about either starting a business or is in the early stages of planning their business. Yeah. Fast forwarding, and we're going to come back to the history lesson first, but now as an angel investor, your role, how much weight do you put on how much pre-planning an entrepreneur shows you ahead of time? And what does that mean to you now? And do you give them the the nuggets of insight if they come in with the hundred page business plan? Yeah. So, you know, for context for me, I've never written another business plan after the caviar one, but I do know an enormous about my market and my competitors before I go in because understanding what your key point of differentiation is, is, is just really important. And the other thing is I think always to break through the noise, like, you don't need the same product. You don't need a product that's like twice as good. You need a product that's 10 times as good. Like you should hold yourself to a really high standard. And so doing all of the, you know, competitive calls, understanding exactly, you know, how your competitors are growing their business and what mistakes they made and how do you avoid those? Like that is really essential. So when I get founders who like don't know who their competitors are or don't think they have competitors. They're the only one. <laughs> the only one yeah. doing this specific That's thing. Never happened in the dot of time, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so I um I think that that part is really, really important to um, to understand. And then the rest, you know, the planning of how you're gonna execute. I mean, you gotta just get going and and use all the, the leverage and relationships you have to to build something. But um but yeah, I really encourage founders to stop planning. <laughs> I, I definitely agree with you. And I'm so glad you said that. And it's a big part of your story. Yeah. So now we're going to rewind again. Mm-hmm. After 
after it imploded, yeah. and I definitely relate with you. My first business was a dramatic failure. Yeah, I went personally bankrupt because I registered the company wrong from the get go, which was a huge lesson. It's literally why we have Clear Bank, so that doesn't happen to entrepreneurs ever again. <laughs> it's and it's amazing, and yeah. we're I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, it's such an incredible service. That moment when you're just feeling like you're surrounded by the failure and trying to break out of that. Do you yeah. have any advice on how to power through that that helped you? Was there any North Star? I think it's I think it's really good. And look, when you sign up to be an entrepreneur, you're signing up for a roller coaster. Your whole life, you are getting a strip just torn out of you, right? You do like a bunch of pitch meetings, no matter if you're like Uber or someone, someone's saying no, someone's saying they don't like it, someone has an opinion um, on it. And so I think there are, um, there was really like two things for me. So the first thing that I think early founders do is they have an idea and they ask everyone around them what they think of that idea. So inevitably you have a diversified group of friends. So it's, you know, your smart lawyer friend, your smart accountant friend, your smart artist friend. And inevitably those people point out everything that could go wrong in your business. And the worst part is they're right. The problem with that is that's not helpful to you as an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur fundamentally is about making low probability events become high probability events. And that's not reducing all the risk and thinking about all the things going wrong. That's actually just putting so much determination and focus into getting things to go well. And so the only people that also do that for a living are other entrepreneurs. And so the the best thing when you are down is to is to have a circle of entrepreneurs that can be around you, people you really like and respect, because they will remind you all the time that the that their companies and frankly all the greatest companies in the world were, you know, nearly on the verge of bankruptcy for not usually their first like two years, their first twenty years. Definitely, yeah. Uh, you know, it that, takes a long time. That there was so many insane risks, but it was you know closing this one big deal or this one big partner or this one great hire that ultimately produces these step changes in companies. Um, and so having a group of group of friends, I mean, I had a, you know, my girlfriend, Nicole Verkant, we did marathon training together every Saturday. Like we had four hours of shit to talk about on oh, yeah. a weekly basis oh, of yeah. just what was happening. And it was so cathartic. It was so, and it was, you know, I, I had a confidant when I had to fire someone, when you live through these terrible days as an entrepreneur and you just, you're just like, why am I doing this? Um, so that that circle was really important um, to me. And then it was also conversely important that when I had ideas, I actually protected them. I told my entrepreneur friends, I got their feedback, but I wasn't getting the feedback of everyone else in my life because they had, you know, largely dumb negative feedback, like accurate feedback, but I couldn't cloud myself with all the risks of an idea. That just- Yeah, it'll weigh it, you down. It just totally weighs you down. Um, and then the second thing that's always helped over the years is reading the stories and listening to the stories of other entrepreneurs. Like there is not a single book you can read, whether it's the story of Alibaba or, you know, McDonald's or um, Amazon, where you're reading these stories and you're like, oh my God, like this, this almost. Yeah, it was you know, almost off the rails. This, this is crazy. Almost off the rails. Like the whole thing was off the rails, right? Like, you know, even like, and, and, and hearing that reminds you that everything you're going through is not is not unique. It's part of the journey and it's supposed to be the journey. But, yeah. It but it is dark. It's really journey. hard. Last like last thing about like dealing with stress for me is and it 
and I know this sounds so simple, but I think we overlook it, is like humans were designed to be outside. So now we're not outside, we're inside, and we're like, we have computers glued to our hands. Um, and that's inevitable, and we all have to work in that world. But when you need a reset, like go outside. Like, ideally where your phone doesn't work, like go for a hike, go skiing, go sailing, go, like, go somewhere. And even if you can get in like three or four hours of that, it's like problems just distill in a very different way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's amazing advice. So key is having a huge support network. Yeah. Well, not huge, but a very tight knit, very, and by huge, I mean supportive. Yeah. Massively supportive. Of network, other entrepreneurs. Of other entrepreneurs. Yeah. And get outside. Get outside and read the stories of other entrepreneurs. Read the stories of entrepreneurs. Yeah. Super helpful. So then you took a you took a step away from the world of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Just a little break. You went outside <laughs> yeah. of entrepreneurship and you ended up where? So yeah, when the caviar business didn't make it, tried a bunch of other things. The recession got so bad, I was like, I need a, a real job. And so I got a job as the director of strategy for Sears. And, you know, at the time they were doing, you know, a billion dollars of catalog sales. I was like, this should be 100% e-commerce. Like, I mean, they had pick and pack merchandising before anyone else, you know, you could go to like their warehouse could find you a white medium t-shirt plus a washing machine and put it in one box. No problem. <laughs> no problem. And they were looking for talent. So they were giving out these like insanely um, high roles to kind of junior people. And so I went there and I just, I just tried to be a sponge. I mean, ultimately like I knew that I wasn't, that I didn't have a uh, career destined for corporate. But, you know, when you get a chance to like read every research report, to understand exactly how all retail works, to, you know, add a little bit of value, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then there, I mean, n n that was so pivotal. I mean, it was there that I saw e-commerce blowing up. I mean, we are in 2010 now. This is the very beginning. I remember reading, you know, the first articles that were coming out, it was like Groupon was just getting going. And so, you know, the same three of us that started the caviar business sat back down in a Starbucks. And this time, instead of, you know, saying, we should really build a business plan or like, we should launch an e-commerce store like in three weeks from now. And we don't have any money. So our plan, we had $15,000 left in our old Evandale Caviar oh, bank wow. account. So we said, we can use that money to like pay overseas developers. They can build it. We can get like a famous person to tweet for us and we'll launch it a trade show. That, that was our entire business plan. That's huge. So way less than 80 pages. Way less. So you know what happens? Well, we're launching at the trade show and the overseas developers have not finished the website. And so I'm like, no, no, no. We like spent all of our money doing this. And so when we launch, we didn't launch with a website. We launched with a JPEG, which is a picture of a website. <laughs> yes, it is. And it opened in a web browser and we like, you know, tried to be compelling. We like underlined the things that should be links. <laughs> and we just had enough time to program one button, which was the buy button. And that took you to a PayPal page so you could cash out. Wow. And so it was just, I mean, it was... It was a disaster. Like, there's nothing. There's no what other was the word. product? So we were, you know, a, a daily deal site in Toronto. And so we had, you know, deals on restaurants and spas and things to do. And it was at that very first trade show with this JPEG of a website that we sold $10,000. And I was like, oh, my goodness. What a change. <laughs> what a change. And I got to talk to my customers for the first time and understand what they were looking for. And, you know, I would have never guessed from there, like, this tiny little company 
that is still legally called Evandale Caviar Inc. <laughs> um, you know, would have became one of the fastest growing Canadian companies. We figured out low cost customer acquisition and deals with national brands and eventually, you know, did a roll of strategy um, where we bought 10 of our competitors. That's and so amazing. it was, um, and this company was called Bytopia. Bytopia. This was Bytopia. And so, you know, it was just, and there was lots of hard years. I mean, we were in, like people remember daily deals, like such a competitive space, it's right? It's actually real quick. At the top, it was like Groupon and Living Social. And then it was like 400 other players after that. And so we were constantly looking for for ways to continue to like grow that business that that wasn't in this ultra margin compressed space. And so, you know, that was there was a lot of hard years there, right? We were self-funded. Um, you know, I had a competitor in Canada that raised $62 million. Like I remember I remember thinking I was like going to die when I read the press release. Yeah, it's over. It's over for you. And, How can you compete? And this is the great lesson. I actually remember I called my dad and I was like, we're, we're not going to make it. And he's like, you know, just remember when you have lots of money, you spend lots of money. And the, the tale of this story is so funny because inevitably that company spent all their money. They were basically acquired for 10 cents on the dollar. And then we acquired that company for <laughs> 10 cents on the dollar. So, you know, four years later, you have the funniest laugh in your life where you're like, holy smokes. Yeah, <laughs> like, definitely. I was so scared at one point. Um, but ultimately, like execution is your number one competitive advantage. And grinding it out, you know, it's like successful people do what unsuccessful people weren't willing to do. It was just one more day of like, fighting for that next deal and, uh, and you know, keeping going. That's amazing. I think that's super important. Don't focus too much on your competition. Be aware, but yeah. just stay in your own lane and, and out-execute. And that's that's how you can ultimately win and maybe buy the competitor that raised $62 million how while you're self-funding. That, right? That's absolutely wild. <laughs> Does your dad reference that call to this day, I assume? <laughs> I, I, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's given me some good advice throughout the years. But, you know, it is just, it's impossible to not have that drip of fear where you're like, oh, God. Yeah. We're not Everything that I worked for, yeah. poof. Yeah, but but you can't be scared. You just have to constantly think of like, what's your advantage? And um, and they did all sorts of things. And you did too. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> you did a lot of cool stuff. And at that point, when when you did acquire and you rolled up a bunch of sites, yeah, were you were you considering raising a big round? Were you considering maintaining self funding, or were you looking at other routes? Like, yeah, what, where was your headspace? Probably. I don't know what the exact timeline would be, maybe six months after you start rolling up. And yeah, so, so you this need is, to take it this to is a level. good story. So the first part is like, people are like, well, how did you even get into like buying other companies? And so there's a really big lesson in here. The first thing that, like, it's so easy to think of your competitor as your arch nemesis because you literally wake up and you're like, oh God, they did this today and now I have to match it and I have to do this. But at the end of the day, when you step back from it, your competitor has the most similar life to you than almost anyone else on the planet. Like they're dealing inevitably with the same types of problems, with the same types of challenges. And so, you know, if you're not a dick, you can actually get along with most of your competitors. Completely. And there's things in the industry that are accretive to two parties. And so the example in daily deals is when we had a merchant, so like a restaurant that, you know, was selling a bunch of deals and wasn't honoring these coupons, it was actually it was really amazing for me to call the other deal sites and be like, yo, don't work with this guy. He's going to be trouble for you too. Cause he was just trouble for me. I mean, this is like 
you know, doing the best thing for your competitor, but it's, it's actually mutually beneficial. And so, you know, in the early days, we actually just got to know everyone. And in the world where people wanted to avoid, I would like call people up and grab coffee with them. And inevitably, as, you know, companies weren't doing well or founders were thinking of doing other things, we became the first phone call that they made. You know who was pretty cool going forward? Michelle. I wonder I wonder if they're buying. <laughs> yeah, I wonder I wonder what they're doing or I wonder if there's like some sort of deal or partnership to do. And so the first deals we were able to do were, you know, largely on earnout structures where we said we'll pay a little bit up front or something, but you know, we'll basically pay for your users over time. And so the pitch to the founder was really simple. It was like instead of, you know, like you're losing 250000 or a million dollars on this company a month. Let me stop your bleed and then I can pay you for some of the asset you built. Um, and so, you know, it starts there. And then once you have a formula, you can put a little bit more capital behind it, get get companies that are slightly bigger. And then as soon as you integrate one or two companies, you can figure out a formula on on how to do that and how to create that going forward. But, you know, it added a lot of value in a really short period of time. Definitely. I think that's huge. To I'm a big believer in, having as few enemies as possible. Mm -hmm. So considering a competitor an arch nemesis doesn't totally jive with me. You should always exercise caution because you never know somebody's true motives. But I definitely agree that you get more with honey than vinegar. So without question, I completely agree with. Yeah. So you're rolling up companies. You have Mm -hmm. a formula processes in place to integrate everybody. Where, where's your head out? Are you just looking to snatch up every deal site that you can? Are you going to, just happy, be happy with the silo of deals that you've done and then just continue to grow naturally like you had been? Where, where were yeah, you at? Yeah, this, this kind of becomes an opportunistic play. You're talking to everyone and then you're seeing like what deals can close, where the founder's headspace is, and you're just going to keep, um, you're just going to keep doing that. And so, you know, eventually we did that. The other thing that we were doing is we were buying these deal sites and we were also starting other business lines all the time and, and trying to see if these other things worked. And I don't think I can over-exaggerate enough how many projects we tried. Like how often you need to fail to be successful as an entrepreneur. And and entrepreneurs don't talk about this enough because you just get, you know, in my in my 30-second bio, I get to list my three wins. I don't have to list my 85 losses Definitely. in there. Yeah. But Holy smokes, there was a lot of things. I mean, we built a, a scheduling company that we could sell to our merchants. So, you know, every single hair studio and yoga studio could offer, you know, a scheduling service for their clients and built all the technology. I mean, got a hundred customers on board and just like couldn't make the business work. And we're like, holy smokes, this is hard. You know, we tried building an early competitor to Uber Eats. Um, we had a hundred restaurants with receipt printers that were taking orders that people could order takeout on. And like, man, the unit economics on that business were so hard. Like this was a real experiment that a ton of time and money and people were put into. Couldn't make it work. We then were like, look, you know, we have a lot of customers and CPGs don't have a good way of, you know, distributing their products. So maybe we'll build one of these like beauty box competitors. And that story ended with like 5,000 units of self-tanner in my (laughs) office. Like not the product you were hoping for. And... You know, it was after all of those, it was actually, especially after that one that we're like, well, there's got to be a a way of doing this in a mobile way. And so, you know, we designed this really quick app. You could see a list of offers. It was like a dollar off this brand of potato chips. You could go to any retailer and buy that and just take a photo of your receipt to get cash back. 
and we were giving back data to the CPGs. We were, you know, giving cash to the consumers. Um, and that became kind of the first iteration of Snap Saves. And when we got that, it just like took off. Within a year, you know, we had almost all the major CPGs on board. You know, at our peak, we were at, I don't know, call it like a million downloads a week. And then it was like, holy smokes, this is really working. Wow. And like nothing you had seen before. Yeah, like nothing because you you just grind away for so long as an entrepreneur. And then Groupon found us and they're like, we got to buy this company. Like you figured out the next the next iteration of this. And, you know, the deal closed uh, on my 28th birthday. I'll never forget. I stayed up all night like signing paperwork. I, I mean, I would do that any day of for course. the rest of the world. <laughs> but, a hell uh, of a birthday party. A hell of a birthday party for sure. And, you know, all my friends are like, this is amazing. You know, the the app was live for whatever, eight months. You got bought out by an American giant. Like, this is amazing. How did you do this? And I I just made them all stop. And I was like, this wasn't eight months. This was eight years of At me least. working. To, exactly. Of, of just nonstop grind. Um and just the reminder of the sacrifices. Like I had, I feel like a year where I didn't go to anyone's birthday party. It was just like I had to work. I had to grind. And I, and I had to grind. Uh, and I had to keep doing it. And it was funded by fish money. It was caviar money, <laughs> amazingly enough. $15,000, not very much. But yeah, exactly. That's amazing. So when when Groupon came knocking, Snapsafe is spun out, separate company yeah, from separate Bytopia. separate company from Bytopia. So they only wanted Snapsafe. Yep. Bytopia is was still running for a yep. period of time. And and is still running. And now that group of companies should actually, the group of e-commerce companies that we've acquired should go public uh, in the next year or two. So that, that, that worked out too. But so, and it's funny because what happens in the tech space is it's really important to build up critical momentum quite quickly. And so, you know, the app had launched, we were doing really well. We started talking to VCs, you know, should we raise kind of a, a series A, like what, what does this look like? And then it was through that process that we're like, you know, Groupon would actually be the perfect fit because they have a hundred million users. They have exactly the users. They totally understand how to do that. And, you know, the journey to getting there was like, you know, eight different ways, right? It was meeting with VCs who, who knew the founders of Groupon. It was, it was a bunch of different ways that we that we got connected, and then it was a long. I mean, it was a six month process to get that deal done. It doesn't it doesn't happen overnight. Definitely not. How many times? And there's probably no exact number, but how many times did it almost fall apart? Where you had that same feeling when you saw your competitor raise sixty two million dollars, and yeah. it's like, oh, this is not going to happen all the time. <laughs> like I, I mean, I, I. I remember, like, I know when I go into this mode of just being like Michelle. Your only job today is to get to tomorrow. That's it. We're just going to do this one day at a time. And it was one day at a time for, you know, four or five months because a deal process is grueling. Like they are going through every single piece of data you have. They are referencing all of your customers. They are interviewing all of your employees. Like the exhaustion and the twists and turns of this, because so much of it you're not controlling, right? It's like, oh, what happened in the public markets? Oh, we, we don't feel like we can pay as much anymore. And, you know, Sorry. some like tax guy got involved and they're like, oh, we're going to move this from a share sale to an asset sale. Like, no, 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 you can't do right. that. And, <laughs> but those turns happened all the time throughout the process. And so I think it's, 
It's just, and then on top of that, you got to still grow your business, which is crazy. Like you have to be there selling and closing deals and continuing the momentum that you've created. You can't just do deal stuff all day. Although you have enough work to just do deal stuff. They they have an entire deal team that their only job is to do deals. This is just a part of your job. Definitely. And so, you know, getting through that is tough, but it's doable. And, you know, there can be big outcomes at the end of this. And so it's worth just saying, all I got to do is one day at a time. That's right. One day at a time. From your position now, and you've gone through a couple acquisitions at this point, either from your own companies that you yep. founded or companies you've invested in, yep. are there any high-level points outside of just grinding away and, and, and making sure to show up each day at a time that you feel could either expedite the process or help entrepreneurs weed out people that potentially actually might not be serious or yeah. worth their time to explore the deal? There's always a little bit of a dance. I mean, all of us wish we could walk into a meeting. I mean, it's kind of like being on a date. It's like, you just walk in and be like, yo, is this happening tonight or not? It's like, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, or you're probably not going to be very successful that way. So ultimately, you know, it's all of that. You have to you have to suss out buyers that you think will be good and that there's a genuine fit. And you got to like those people because it's going to be almost impossible if there isn't that kind of natural chemistry. You then, there's like a whole element of playing a little bit hard to get. Like you have to be creating options. I mean, one of the best pieces of deal advice I ever got was the biggest aphrodisiac in a deal is to say no. But to say no, you have to have other options. You can't just like, fake a no because these spaces are small and everyone's you know, going to say, well, I'm going to raise from this person. They're just going to call that person or whatever. And so creating those options is is really important. And so, you know, you should always have an option of, you know, this is how much money I could raise if I did VC. This is how much, you know, money ClearBank or another funder could give me. This is what I could probably deal with if I sold the company. But creating those options is essential in kind of getting going. And then and then it's, yeah, it's about being, you know, solid and strategic and, and getting through the process and figuring out, you know, when you have to push and where you have to put deadlines. Totally. And it just goes back to your point of being friendly with everybody and, totally. and keeping your options open. I mm-hmm. think that's a really strong theme to highlight. So acquisition closes, you're partying your face off, yeah. signing papers. <laughs> Did you, was there an earnout component where you had to stay at Groupon for a while? What, what were the next 12 to 18 months like for you yeah. post-acquisition? So, I mean, I think every deal, they, they want founders to stay on because they're such an important asset in, in what's being built. And so, you know, we brought, uh, like ourselves, the founders and the team down to Chicago. So I always joke that I like one from Toronto, which is a cold winter, to like Chicago, which is an even colder coldest winter. Coldest winter. <laughs> the coldest. Um, we learned to sail in Chicago, which was a big highlight That's of living there. And I loved, and I loved the city. And then it was, yeah, about doing that, about integrating the product and figuring out how to like get this live and work with all the Groupon systems and leverage their database of users. And so. And then did your experience rolling up the other deal sites with Bytopia, did that help at all? Or did that almost prove troublesome because the other teams maybe weren't as into similar processes or. No, I, it was, it was hugely helpful. I mean, at our, at our core, we deeply understood what the Groupon business model was and what the assets were because we had been building a competitive business to that. So, you know, for us to come over, that was that was actually a huge help to understand like how the core business worked. Like, you know, everything. I mean, 
we, um, we needed a different kind of salesperson. Like, you know, the way you can get a, a daily deals salesperson is very different than someone who is talking to consumer packaged goods companies and probably has 20 years of experience. Like they're just very different. And so we understood how we needed to explain that uh, to Groupon when we were there. So I think that was generally a big asset. So you integrated the company yep. flawlessly. It <laughs> Nothing is flawless, <laughs> right. let me tell you that much. <laughs> right. I mean, That's in true. life or anything. Yeah, but. true. Um, integrated mostly blemish free. Yeah. Uh, the product is still snapped by Groupon. Yeah. When did you set sail as, as you say, since you learned how to sail, when did you depart from the yeah, company? We, we said we would stay for a year. We stayed for a year and a half and, you know, I felt pretty good about that. And then, you know, all these other interesting things started happening to my life. I joined the cast of Dragon's Den, which is the Canadian version of Shark Tank. So I was now on television making deals and figuring out TV and media for the first time. And the youngest dragon. And the in the history dragon, of Dragon's Den. In the history of Dragon's Den. It's made in 28 countries. And, so cool. Uh, and I joined the show when I was 29. Um, so, you know, that was really fun to see. I got to join the board of a couple public companies. So I'm on the board of like Fail, which owns all the ski resorts, um, and Freshy, which is like a salad, uh, salad chain with about 450 locations. And so it was just, it was time. And, and I just kept, it was actually from the show, a lot of it. And I, you know, when you, we film the show, we film the whole thing in 17 days, almost back to back. Wow. So that's intense. Grueling. It's like a 10 hour day, 10 pitches a day. Like it's real, it's 12 hour day actually. Um, and you know, a lot of things distill when you see that kind of volume at once. And so one of the things I just kept seeing was, you know, and it's like, again, the show's biased towards products that you can see because it's, you know, it's television. And so it was like, you know, the guys that started these like wooden cell phone cases, right? They're like on the show. It's like a father-son team. They're so excited. They're like, you know, we make each cell phone case for 10 bucks. We sell it for $50 on the internet and yeah. then on the internet. Yes. And, <laughs> World uh, Wide Web. World Wide Web, you know, and 10 bucks in Facebook ads. And like, we have this great business and we're here on the show. We're looking for $100,000 for 25% of our company. Uh, you know, after you see the like 50th deal that looks basically like this, you're like, man, equity is such a bad fit because these guys are going to be really resentful if I own 25% of their company. This is like, you know, there's no huge natural tech buyers for the wooden cell phone case company. These are e-commerce products. And, you know, wouldn't it be better? I was like, look, man, I'll give you the hundred grand, but instead of taking equity and instead of taking a personal guarantee, like this is debt, you know, why don't you pay me 5% of your revenue until you pay me back $106,000? I'll charge like 6% flat fee for my capital. And founders loved that. And so- Probably blew their mind. We, yeah, totally. I What's mean, the it catch? Was so it was, it was exactly that. It was so, it was so unique. And, and the catch was just that I could deploy a lot of money um, this way. And I understood the risks really well. Because think about it. I had spent the last seven years of my career looking at customer acquisition costs for- our own e-commerce website for all the e-commerce websites we bought for snap saves downloads. Like I could tell when you open your Facebook dashboard, I was like, this is a great company or this is yeah, a terrible done. company. <laughs> and that's a huge indicator. I mean, if you are overspending on your customer acquisition costs and you have no form of rebuild or repeat revenue, like I hate to break it to you. You're not going to make it. There's just no way to keep this going. And so, you know, this this structure of, you know, we'll give you money, don't take personal guarantees, take a percentage of your revenue until we get 6% back. That became the basis of ClearBank. And 
you know, this year we'll give founders a billion dollars in capital That's on that structure because it we we found exactly that product market fit. I mean, last year was 150 million, and it's like no one thought we could do that. Definitely. Um, but there's, you know, founders really want that. They want an option that's like, I don't want to put my house online. Like, you should not have gone bankrupt. That was not supposed to happen. That is not fair. You already gave your whole life up to starting a company. Like, that 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 is not a fair trade. Um, and so we're we're I'm pretty excited about what we're building. That's amazing. So how did how did ClearBank actually come to fruition? So you had this idea, had the business model in place. Was it another beer brainstorm session with some close <laughs> entrepreneur friends? or Exactly. How did, exactly. That's exactly like, how it birthed. You know, all of us constantly brainstorming. And so Andrew and I just kept, we kept coming back to this idea of like, where's the, the big sources of disruption in 2015? So in 2015, you know, Uber's kind of, you know, really peaking. Um, Facebook is, is really at doing incredibly well. And we're like, look, you know, if the last 10 years was media being disrupted, the next 10 years is financial services being disrupted. Like your bank is so far behind what your Uber experience looks like. I remember literally having to change like the pin code on a debit card and the call was 55 minutes long. I was like, I don't even know how right. this is possible. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> multiple I can, agents. Well, like, well, I can like get across town with two clicks and, 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 that's hard because, you know, in banking, it's a regulated industry. There's reasons why things take longer and why, why things take more hoops to jump through. But the customer doesn't care. Doesn't matter. Doesn't care. They have a new expectation of how everything should work. And so I was fascinated with what was, what was happening in fintech. I was fascinated with all these platforms growing. We had started doing some of these deals. And so, you know, still with ClearBank, it wasn't a straight path. Our first product was you know, a product for Uber drivers. And the second product was for Airbnb hosts. And then it was kind of like we were doing this thing on the side with these companies from the TV show. And we're like, oh, this is really working. Yeah, wait we a should second. do more of this. And I think that, that that maybe is like the other big lesson for me is that everyone thinks that like innovation comes from like, you know, a big brainstorming session. You just like, just like fill, just like think of a bigger idea. Right. I can't stand that. I can't stand when corporate companies are like, innovation is big ideas. I'm like, you have no idea what's going to be big before it is big. Because I sat there as the innovator being like, I I think the future is going to have VR and AR and all these things, but we actually have no idea None. how the companies are going to shape out, who's going to be in charge of this, how the business models are going to shape out. Um, you know, everyone thought, like, oh, great, the phone has location-based services. I guess we should all, like, get into Foursquare and just, right. like, tell our friends where we are. No one was like, this would be really good for taxis. Huge. <laughs> Huge, Exa exactly. And so real innovation doesn't come from big ideas. It comes from iteration. It comes from just this constant refinement process of, like, trying and doing things. And it it was literally no different from when I started Caviar to when we started ClearBank, which I think is pretty cool because then you just know it's a process. Then the process is, Michelle, you got to try five things and, and one of those things is going to hit. And then you know exactly what to do from there. Yeah. That being for the said, most part. That being said, it's not like less painful. Definitely. Th that's a really important point. Like everyone's like, well, does it get easier? And I'm like, yeah, it actually does get easier because, you know, you have more people that believe in you and you have a bigger network and like the things that were so hard in the early days, like getting a meeting, like that becomes much easier. But and the, you also can deal with the emotions that come with it yeah. a little bit better. Not that they ever go away. There's still something you have to manage, but you 
can kind of take a step back and just think, I've been here before. Yeah. This sucks. I'll get through it. But I'll get through it. And and it's exactly that. The process of finding an idea that works is still like kind of getting slapped in the face. You're like, because you have to put real effort to build these products, (laughs) right? It's not just like you can just like test them in five minutes. It's like you put together landing pages and technology and all this stuff and then tell your whole friends and your entire Facebook network and everyone that you're going to do this. And then it's like, and no one wants my product. <laughs> womp, womp. Womp, womp. Yep. But that is what makes great entrepreneurs. Just this ability to be incredibly gritty and to continue to try some things and to continue to like seek out that like little silver bit, that little silver lining. It's not a silver lining. Silver lining is like this concept that there's like, you know, good in every bad. This is like, I did this experiment and nothing worked except this tiny little part. What if we just made that thing into a business and expanded on that? So- with all the iterations of ClearBank, when did you, because you you just accelerated like a rocket ship, I feel, in the yeah. past 24 months or so, and yeah. it was probably even before that, but it seemingly came out of nowhere, but you've been cranking away for years and years. Yeah. When did you decide e-commerce products, this current model, and the formulas that you use to, to formulaically deliver the capital, yeah. when did that take shape? Yeah, so you know, one of the most remarkable things, and it's the same process of iteration, is that. Um, and actually, before you answer that, yeah, we'll take a step back. How from from maybe the thirty second overview, what's it like to get funded by ClearBank as oh, a company? Yeah, so to get funded by ClearBank, like I tried to build the product I wish I would have had as an entrepreneur, and so you know, like I don't want to do like a million emails and phone calls and Excel polls. So we made this as simple as possible. You can come to our website. We need four big data sources from you. We need uh, your payment processor, your bank account, your ad spend account, so Google or Facebook, and then your e-commerce account. And if you can remember the passwords for those four things so that we can see them with read-only access, you can get an offer in 15 minutes. (laughs) Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I mean, we have funded... You know, we funded one company last year, $10 million, and we did the deal in 48 hours. Wow. So we have tried to make this as easy as possible. You could always talk to someone on our team because, like, it's a little bit complicated to, like, understand the product sometimes. You have questions, and we want to we make sure that we can answer all those. Um, but, yeah, the process is you plug in your data sources. Um, we can give you an offer right away and then, you know, get you started in kind of the next 24 to 48 hours. Great. So then back back to... The original question before I jumped over, how does ClearBank work? Mm-hmm. When when did that take shape in the current model where it's it's heavily e-commerce brand focused, yeah. which I love. And any brands and e-commerce companies out there, definitely check out ClearBank if you're debating whether to raise a round to fund inventory or even paid advertising spend, right? or, or like, something like that. Think about it. 40% of VC dollars, you raise that money and it goes straight to Facebook or Google. That means that you're giving up the most expensive capital, which is always equity. It's a piece of your company you never get back. You're giving that up. And uh, and so we're just, you know, providing cheaper capital to, to you know, get the growth funding that you need. 
which is huge. And again, neither of us is knocking venture capital or angel investing. No, There's it's definitely we get value tons in that. Of referrals, right? There's and and not every business should be a VC backable business. And you know, if you raise VC, you should also raise money from us because use your VC as true risk capital, right? Like think about what VC should be used for. Like true zero to one risk. Like let's build this crazy piece of technology or this new product line or cure this disease. Like there is a that's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. It's real risk there. You know, if you know that that every time you buy a Facebook ad for $5, you get a $25 sale. Like there's very little risk in that. And that's math. What, that's what we want to be funding. Exactly. This measurable and repeatable part of growth. I think that's super important. And it's definitely a huge distinction and an immense amount of self-awareness that an entrepreneur needs to have to know that their business may not be investable, mm-hmm. but it could be clear bankable, mm-hmm. um, which is huge. Exactly. And, you know, then instead of me being a VC and getting to back 10 companies last year, we got to back 500 companies last year. Unbelievable. And so that's um, that's meaningful for me as well. But you were asking about the iterations and how we got here. I mean, you know, we started with, with a product for Uber drivers. We then, you know, helped a lot of Airbnb hosts grow out their properties. And we were running, I always believe in running experiments. And in my own companies, I try and always have experimental teams. And so it's usually like one sales and ops person and one software developer. And between the two of them, they should be constantly trying new products. And so this was one of the products um, that we were like, well, we should like give it a go. I wasn't even super excited about it at the beginning. I'd done a little bit of these kind of deals in the show. And, you know, the, the very first company we backed, um, Hunt Killer, it's like a murder mystery subscription box. I mean, we gave the guy $10,000 two years ago. Like this year, uh, you know, his business is massive and he owes, I think he has... I don't know, 25,000 customers or whatever. And he owns 100% of his company. That's so exciting. Yeah. Where does ClearBank go from here? I mean, you said you're going to fund about a billion dollars this year. to founders. Wow. (laughs) Where, what's next? Like what's in the roadmap that you can talk about? You know, for us, it's about figuring out every product that matters to founders. And so that's figuring out how to get, you know, discounts on the things that that they buy the most of. It's figuring out... um, how we make their e-commerce experience super seamless, how we help them optimize their ads, how we help them, um, you know, pay vendors everywhere. Like there's so much that you can build on. And then, you know, the, the growth for us is like, we're just going to keep doing, you know, other verticals, right? If you're building like a, you know, consumer SaaS product, we should be able to help fund that. Any form of repeatable growth. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's math. Yeah. It's math. It's math. <laughs> math and opportunity. Before I let you go, there's mm-hmm. two things. One, is there a life motto, a life quote, a guiding just energy that you can apply previously to just points in your life when you're mm-hmm. at a crossroads? Anything you live by? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's funny because I, I, you, you told me I was going to get this question. And so I, I texted my business partner and, and I was like, you know, what do you, what do you think I should say? And and he gave me this line, and I have to give you the story behind it because without the story, it doesn't make sense. He goes, "Your line is, I'll cry later." And when he first met me, I um, we were like brainstorming all these caviar ideas, and I remember it was uh, just as about we were about to go into like fourth year exams. So these are like your most important exams. Um, I had just ended a three, or sorry, I had not ended. My boyfriend had ended a three year relationship with me, like. As we were going into exams, I was like, bro, Brutal. could you have not waited like a week or yeah. something to do this later? Come on. 
And, you know, I'll never like I don't remember this experience, but he remembers it with crystal clarity because I walked into like whatever the computer lab or wherever we were studying. And he he looks at me He's just, you know, my friend. And he's like, are you going to be OK? And I just looked at him and I was like, I'm going to cry in a week from now. Like I just was so focused in I got a problem that I got to do and I just have to do exams and I just have to power through whatever else is there. And that's not to say that like I, I don't care about my emotions, I don't listen to myself, but I think the ability to to see and go after an end goal, it's like you kind of just have to power through some of these, you know, day-to-day emotions. And one of the things that I'm a big believer of is it's like it's okay to, to feel different every single day. I think we got to this like point in society a little bit where the expectation is like we feel the same every day. I don't I don't think that's a human state. I think no, the human state right has like great highs, it has great lows. You need people around you that allow you to do that, but you you got to embrace that. And so when I was low, I was like, okay, I got to I got to just ignore this for about a week, finish these exams yeah, and then let it and go. And keep going. And I think um, you know, the, the important part of my personality that, that I've always relied on is that like, I was just tough. Like I've seen so many things go wrong. I, I, you know, we had horrible experiences in the early days where I was certain we were going to go bankrupt. You know, we had a payment processor, we had a, we had a deal go wrong. We had a payment processor who's like, you know, you're going to owe all, us all this money. And I was like, that's when I first figured out about personal guarantees. I was like, Oh no, like I didn't like You're terrible. in size four font, like you made me sign a personal guarantee and I didn't know. It was terrifying. And, you know, ultimately we we solved the problem. We got ourselves out of that situation. Um, but I've I've certainly never forgot the stress that that caused. It was it was the main mission behind ClearBank. But it also just gave me this incredible toughness that even when I'm having a bad day now, I'm like, okay, Michelle, you've seen way worse before. Yeah. Eh. And uh, and I think that gives you a really important calmness. And when you're calm, you have good ideas, you can solve problems, and you can be really creative. And when you're frazzled, we're just all like, we get we get too emotional. So my that. line would be, I'll cry later. That's perfect. That was so much more than I ever wanted. That was amazing. That was so good. <laughs> Um, I guess last thing is where can people find you? Yeah. Oh, I'd love for people to find me. So, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E. That means my parents forgot one of the L's in Michelle. And my last name is Romano, R-O-M-A-N-O-W. So just at Michelle Romano on any of the platforms. Consistent brand. That's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it was a pleasure. And safe travels back to the six. Thank you. Well, you got to come. It's, it is, it is his city. I mean, he's freaking Phil Toronto (laughs) and scene that was great aside from me running out of adjectives other than the word huge which uh, I'm okay with you know we all have our quirks I'm still excited this is episode two I love this thank you for listening Michelle dropped some real nuggets, and if I were to get upset about anything, I'm going to try my best to cry later. But seriously, thank you so much again for listening. Now, hopefully, you have two episodes under your belt. You're eyeing up the third one. You're hungry for it. It's a great one, too. I can promise you that. So please 
like, comment, give me five stars on iTunes, give me five stars anywhere you can give me five stars, as long as the maximum amount of stars you can give is five stars. And if not, give me that amount of stars, unless you don't like it, and then just don't review it. So I appreciate that. So like, comment, subscribe on iTunes, The Tartar Project. Find me on Instagram, at Phil Toronto. Comment there, like my stuff. Again, if you don't like my feed, then follow me maybe still, but don't tell me. Uh, I appreciate that. But I will catch you on the next episode and the following week for episode four as well. If you're just sitting there thinking I can't get enough of this guy's voice in my ears, I'll be here. <laughs>